Welcome into the Clap Trap. Brought to you by Ultrasound Productions. Now also playing on 90.7 WKKL. Dangerous pass. Shot clock at three. Brown puts up the three. Off the mark. Rebound Wiggins. He's got three seconds to get a shot off. Wiggins to Poole. Poole gets it off in time. Oh, he banks it in. He banks it in. They count it. As the buzzer sounds. Using every possible second, Wiggins wisely gets it a pool. They're going to look at it. That's closer than it appeared in live action, but it, it looks like he got it off in time. It's out of his fingertips right there. That's going to count. That was it. That was it right there. If you ask me, that was the moment. That ruined it for the Celtics in Game 5. I'm talking about the end of the third quarter. Jordan Poole pulling up for a three-point shot. That, first of all, he shouldn't have even had the opportunity to shoot. I mean, we got to get back defensively. You see Derek White you know, running across court from being down in the corner to trying to cover him. There's got to be somebody else that can step up. Jalen's got to follow through and get through to that guy, whatever you need to do. Also, going back to the Jalen Brown shot itself, I know it's late in the shot clock, but there was three seconds left, and Al Horford was completely wide open in the corner, and you pass that up for a contested three-pointer that ended up leaving us in bad positioning so that they could get that buzzer beater at the end of the third quarter so obviously as you can tell we're, we're going to be a lot of Celtics today on the clap trap and I appreciate everybody for tuning in but this is just a it's a tough it's a tough spot to be in you got to be as a Celtics fan worried now there's no way there's no way you can feel good right there's no way at this point after losing game four in the fashion that you did in a game that you felt like you could have won you should have won you were even able to kind of hold court uh, towards the end of the game. I mean, you only lost the third quarter by six points at that point. And yes, we'll get to this third quarter in game five. But if you go back to game four, you felt like you had the momentum going into that fourth quarter after not having the absolute worst third quarter that you could possibly have, which they always do. That's usually how it goes. And then you just don't have the Jays show up in the second half of that, that th uh, fourth game of the series and that's the end of the game right there. That's that's how you don't come back. You can't have Steph Curry outscoring your two best players in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in the second half by himself by about eight or nine points and expect to win that game four. Then you go to game five and you start off just as bad. You're getting down in the first half. You're down 12 at halftime. You make the final crazy comeback, just like you did in Game 5 against the Miami Heat, where I guess you weren't down as big. You were only down, I think, six points at halftime against the Miami Heat in, at, in Game 5. You muck things up in, in the third quarter. You get back into that game, get a lead, and you end up holding on to that lead. But in this one... You dominate that third quarter in the fifth game of this series. Celtics winning the third quarter 35-24. to 24. 
But unfortunately, at the very end, you you leave that door a little cracked open. You give them the lead back. You go into the fourth quarter down one point still after being up, you know, throughout that third quarter and that big run. And then Jordan Poole happens, and all of a sudden the momentum is crushed. Now, at the time, I'm sitting there trying to convince myself watching the game that hasn't ruined the momentum. This was really good. They finally showed up in this series in a third quarter against a best third quarter team in the entire league. You did this, like I said, against the Miami Heat in game five. All you needed to do was come out in the third quarter, play some good defense, which is how they started the run. Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown going down. Obviously, the, the three-pointers helped too, which we can get into that and how that's kind of – they've been very – fluky with their runs at times in this series at times in this entire season but man it felt good for them to actually come out of the halftime with a win in the third quarter and yet you still lost the momentum at the end of the third quarter they come out on fire in the fourth and all of a sudden you're down again they're up eight the game is getting out of hand and and you end up losing that one in a terrible fashion. Another game that falls out of your grasp. If you're a Celtics fan, that can't have you feeling good. It can't. I know. I don't want to be a Hall doom and gloom. They have done it before. They've won a game six and game seven in this run to be able to win a series. They did it against the Bucks, the championship Bucks from last year. So certainly they can do it again, right? We all got to believe that this team, a team that was 18 and 21 halfway through the year or close to it, was was able to turn things around and get the two seed in the Eastern Conference. So, of course, you got to believe that this team is going to be able to come back and they're going to show up in game six. And I do have to say, honestly, the fight that they showed in the third quarter showed me that there is still that little spark somewhere inside their bodies that they can come back. They can still do this thing. But man, it doesn't feel good. I don't want to be all doom and gloom today, but it can't it can't be anything much else besides that when you'll lose back-to-back games, game 4 at home, a game that you should have won if either of your two best players were able to show up just a little bit in the second half and then game 5, that second game in a row that you're going to lose, which they don't do. They don't lose back-to-back games. And yet you did it in this one, even though you had the superhero effort in the third quarter finally showing up. But it just comes down to the fact that this team cannot put a full 48 minutes together against this Warriors squad. And that's what they need to figure out. All right. I want to keep talking about the Celtics, obviously. It's going to be majority-packed episode of the Celtics. So we're going to do that when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. Two minutes and 16 seconds. Curry, the floater is good. Another fine look from Draymond Green. Those two know each other on the court all the time. What they do so well, Mike, when they throw it into that short post area, Curry reads the screen. Last time, as you see the, I don't know what everybody's involved over here. Green wanted to get the ball away from Tatum who wouldn't give it to him. He kept holding it on. And Tatum still has the ball as he's sitting on the bench. Did not want to give it. 4.40 remaining here in the third. I'm not giving it to you right now. I don't care the whistle is blown. Draymond Green trying to become an instigator. What a fight this series has been. 4.40 remaining. 12-point lead for the Warriors. 
Draymond Green trying to become an instigator? I don't know, man. I think he's already been that. I think that's been what he has been the entire series. And yes, you can say that he was absolutely trashed from a basketball perspective for the first three games of the series, but he did at least get things going in game two. He got your feathers ruffled. And then in games four and five, he was certainly a presence more in game five. Game five, there was points in that game where it seemed like Draymond was turning the clocks back to 2016 version of Draymond. He said it in a post-game conference uh, that saying that he felt more like himself in games four and five. And it just brings me back to the fact that everyone in Boston wanted to talk about how trash Draymond Green was, how much he was just, you know, playing too much of that instigator role. I heard things like he was called a thug and he was just, uh, you know, a horrible person. And, you know, he, there's no point in him being on the basketball court because he's not even trying to play the game. He's just trying to be a football player. And I even got into the whole, you know, he was blocking like an offensive lineman or he was running people over like, like he was, uh, you know, um, Aaron Darnold trying to get through an offensive line. Yes, that did happen. But the people out there who are acting like Draymond doing this stuff isn't affecting the Boston Celtics, that's crazy to me. This guy is obviously in our heads. He's in the crowd's head. He's in the player's head. He's getting into, you know, Jason Tatum with it right there at the end of the game. And he has every right to do that when he's up 12 points with about four minutes left in the contest. They have won that game at that point. That game was over at that moment because you felt it from a Celtic standpoint. They just weren't getting their shots. They weren't able to do what they wanted to do. Curry was still doing, or Curry was starting to do his thing at that time. A little floater in the lane, though it wasn't his best performance, obviously. I don't know. It's It's something where... I understand where people want to get on the whole Draymond Green thing because of how much he's an annoyance, because of how much crap he talks, especially in the post-game press conferences when he's talking about how you know the Celt that same Celtics team isn't going to show up in Game 1, or he's coming out after Game 2 and talking about how he's affecting things, and then he's going on throughout the series, and he's running through players, he's running over Grant Williams, Grant Williams, by the way, at some point, buddy, I need you to show up, I, I was praising you, just like every other Celtics fan was, praising you throughout this entire playoff run so far, and then you are a complete no-show in the finals. So Grant, just a little sidebar real quick, need you to start stepping up, need you to do something for this team, and it's going to come in game six, hopefully. But Draymond Green was good enough for what this team, this Warriors squad needed. He only had eight points, eight rebounds, and six assists, so not blow-you-away numbers, but he played 34 minutes. He did end up fouling out, but he had, you know, the, the nice steal in the game. He was playing well throughout this game, and it's on the Celtics to overcome that nonsense. It's on the Celtics to get past all of that kind of stuff and not think about the fact that Draymond's trying to get into your head. It's, it's really about that. So, I mean, the, the, there was the one funny moment 
later on in the game when it looked like, uh, you know, or when he got his sixth foul, I should say, and then all of a sudden he's screaming for his team to challenge it and, you know, jumping around, stamping on the ground, yelling at Steve Kerr like he's a child throwing a tantrum. That was funny, and you can make fun of him for that because he was completely wrong. By the way, Kerr just kind of gives in, and it's just like uh, like the, the parent who has had enough with his crazy child and is like, okay, we're, we're already up. We don't really need you the rest of the game, Draymond. It's already over, so sure, we can we can challenge this one, though I know it's wrong, and you can go and sit on the bench because you know you're wrong, and it's over now. I thought that that was a funny moment, the only funny moment at the end of the game for the Celtics fans, If if I mean, assuming that you stayed around that long, because I know there was a lot of people who were ready to give up. I know I was even talking to my own friends at halftime, talking about how this team could still show up in the third quarter, they could still come back, turn this thing around, and they did, and they did. But it wasn't enough. You weren't able to do enough in this game. And it all comes down to not only the turnovers, but also the missed free throws, right? The missed free throws was something that was astonishing to me. I don't understand what is going on with this team when you're shooting, you know, 14 of 21 from free or from free throw range or getting to the line. I should say, actually, it was 31 times and you only shot 21 of them in. So 67% from the free throw line. So you gave up 10 points at the free throw line in a game that you ended up losing by 10. I'm not going to tell you that it was even that close, though, at the end, because the, when, when the scrubs came in, they did kind of make it a little bit closer. But a game where you lost by 10 points, you missed 10 free throws. That cannot happen. That can't happen. Can't happen going forward. Can't win with it. Can't win like that at all. It's just not going to happen. And I want to also get into the turnovers. So we're going to do that when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp. I don't, I don't want to undersell this segment, but if you're coming to me to make you smarter, I feel sorry for you. I don't, I don't want to undersell it. I don't want to undersell That's it. That's fair. No, I, we've talked about turnovers a ton in, as it relates to the Boston Celtics throughout this playoffs and specifically in this series, but not all turnovers are created equal. There's dead ball turnovers, right? A double dribble, a travel, Jason Tatum airmailing a pass to Marcus Martin in the corner into the fifth row of the stands. But then there's live ball turnovers, and this has been one of the key differences in the series. The Golden State Warriors have forced 45 live ball turnovers, leading to 66 points. The Boston Celtics have only forced 27 live ball turnovers that have led to 42 points. What's the overall difference? In points uh, off turnovers for the series, it's 24. That's all based on that difference in live ball turnovers. You can't get matched up. You're, you're going to be at a disadvantage because it's usually going to be four on three or five on four, and you're just in scramble mode, and the Golden State Warriors are so good at creating scoring opportunities off of these live ball turnovers. And this is the key barometer for the Celtics. When they turn the ball over, they lose. When they can hold it under 15 turnovers a game, they win. But those live ball turnovers, and a lot of that is from that second defender, RJ. That's what we talked about earlier in the show. When Tatum gets a switch onto Curry or to Poole, they're bringing over a second defender early before he even gets into a shot package. When he's in the post against Curry, they're bringing a second defender. He's got to have better awareness about where that second defender is, as does Jalen Brown, and just make the right play and shift the defense. Make the right play, guys. It's that simple. 
It's that simple. All you got to do is not turn the ball over, right? That's all they wanted to talk about. That's all. I, I mean, it makes sense, obviously. You can't turn over the ball and win. They've proven it in this playoff run. They're what now? One and seven when they have 16 or more turnovers, and then 15 or fewer, they're 13 and two or something crazy like that. It, it, it makes sense. You can't turn over the ball and win. And yes, you obviously you can't have it from your superstars or your superstar, I should say, in Jason Tatum. You can't have it from your number two guy in Jalen Brown, and you can't have it from Marcus Smart. Those three guys alone combined for 13 turnovers by themselves. 13 turnovers by just Smart, Brown, and Tatum. You had another two from Horford. There's 15 right there. Grant Williams had two putting you over that threshold, and you lose the game just based on that. And it is a kind of a game where you can go back and just specifically look at a few numbers and know that that was a big part in the game. But I'm also bringing in the free throws as well. You can't be trash at the free throw line and expect to be good in this game. Jason Tatum was two of six from the line and, and also had the four turnovers. So, I mean, a bad game from that perspective. Finally got started hitting threes in that third quarter or later on in the game. And the team went on a eight three-point run in a row, right? Just hitting everything. And that was great to get back into it. But these turnovers are certainly killing us. They're, they're certainly killing us at certain times of the game. And I've been seeing it, especially in Game 5, but throughout the series, where they're making these long, looping passes down the court for no reason that seem to stay in the air for two, three, four seconds. And the Warriors squad just looks at it like, what are you guys doing? And quickly bats the ball away and either gets a turnover or knocks it out of bounds or something like that. It's not quick, clean, crisp passing between players that are not that far away from each other. It's Marcus Smart getting getting over the half-court line and trying to pass it loopingly into the corner to a Jalen Brown or uh, Al Horford, whoever it is at that time, and the ball gets turned over. Or it's Jalen Brown trying to drive through three different players and getting the ball stolen from him, coming up with his hands up in the air like, what did I do? Why, why didn't I get a foul? Same thing with Tatum every single time and now we're only hearing push them to their left make them go to their left and they're completely different players well it's working Celtics it's working Ime Odoka you're gonna have to find some other way to be able to get past this and I know that this is a problem when this team go has shortened up their bench we talked about it all year I was worried about this team and how their stamina was going to be at this point in the year because of the fact that they, since the trade deadline, shortened up that bench and were only running with, what, seven or eight people? That was a seven or eight person lineup. And it gets to this point, and I'm not saying that they're tired now, but what I am saying is you can't rely on anybody but those six or seven guys. So when, the, when a few of them are not working in the game, now you have no depth anymore. So I'm not trying to say that that's the main reason why they're losing these games. The main reason they're losing these games is because you don't have Brown and Tatum hitting at the, the right moments together, not working together and, and working through their troubles and figuring out something that they can do to turn the momentum around. Now, obviously, like I keep saying, the third quarter was great. You hit a bunch of threes, but can we rely on that? Can we honestly, I know that it's live by the three, die by the three, but this team, obviously, they're going to die a lot in that scenario because now the Warriors have figured out their plan. They're getting in people's faces. They're causing disruptions, causing turnovers, things like that. And this team seems fine. The Celtics seem fine to just sit back and shoot their threes that they're getting instead of being aggressive. 
Now, I don't know if that's something to do with the fact that you have Jason Tatum continuing to rub that shoulder, and maybe he's got some type of pinched nerve issue or something going on that we don't know about. But, man, I don't know. I got to say, I'm... I'm very concerned about this. Are you not very concerned about how this team is going to respond in game six from all of these turnovers? It's an obvious emphasis going into this game, and you have a home game, so now your three-pointers are probably going to be hitting, but if this team is not you know, focusing in on changing up their ability to hold on to the basketball, that's going to come back and bite them if by some kind of miracle you're able to get through game six, because game seven will then come, and yes, anything can happen. I'm still believing in that. That, but if you're going into that with the mentality, our three-pointers will carry us through, it's not going to work against this Warriors squad. It's just not. It's just That's just not how things go in this world. I'm sorry, Celtics. It's not how it's going to work. So, I don't know. I believe that they can come back, but it just doesn't feel good right now. It doesn't. There's, there's no way that it could. There's no way that it could. All right. We got to look into the things that are going to help this team or more Celtics topics. I'm going to continue complaining about it when I come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. Is that because they're young? Is that because the stage is too big? It just No, I just think it comes down to decision making. Like I, yeah. Their offense is predicated on a lot of line your guy up and take him off the dribble. And at times they're driving into traffic without a plan. That leads to turnover. They're not recognizing the double teams and they're making bad passes. I talked about it for game one. You go to that fourth quarter when they hit nine threes, every single pass was on time on target. They have yet to replicate that in a game in this series. To me, as I say, that's always the best indicator if a guy's going to hit a shot or not. On time, on target pass. He's going to hit that. On time, on target, yes. We do need to focus on that. We need to focus on the turnovers, obviously. Getting clean passes and focusing on moving the ball. That's going to be the best thing. Like Reddick says there, and yes, I'm, I've been obsessed with J.J. Reddick and his comments lately. I think he's doing a fantastic job. I love when he gets Stephen A. Smith all riled up, but that's a whole side story to what's going on right now. They need to keep moving the ball and, and doing it early in the shot clock, not this this whole one-on-one -on -one stuff that they were doing at the beginning of the year. They'll line you up, try to take you to the hole, beat you on one side, and dribble into some traffic. That's what Jalen's been doing. That's what Tatum's been doing. And then at the last second, they're trying to pass out of it, not making the right pass, and that's where a lot of the turnovers are coming from. So obviously, that is a major key to what is going on here. But in all honesty, what is really the problem with this is you don't have your top two guys showing up. You just don't. You, Tatum has still not shown you that he is a superstar yet in this finals, right? I, and I was talking about it before. I mean, game two, you could say that he was on his way to having an, an outstanding performance. He had 28 points and didn't even play in the fourth quarter. So maybe that could have been it. But the game was too far out of reach at that point, and that's why you didn't come in in the fourth quarter. That's the reason you didn't get to have your st superstar performance. And yes, he's had 20, at least 23 points in the last four games. Great. That's awesome. But you're not overwhelmingly taking over any of these games. You're certainly not shooting the lights out. I haven't seen any 35-plus 40-point performances out of Tatum at any point during this. And yes, you're going to get most of the criticism, Tatum, because people like me, others around the world, have said that you are a superstar. And so to be a superstar, you have to actually show up. What is the other superstar in the series doing in Steph Curry? He is showing up. Sure, he didn't have a good game last night. Everybody gets one. 
But what he's had so far is he had 34 points in game one, 29 game two, 31 game three, 43 in game four. This guy has been on absolute fire. He's the MVP of the series, whether the Warriors win it or not, in my opinion, right? Which, If the Celtics are able to come back, it's going to come on Jason Tatum showing up and finally being a superstar. But the other thing I want to talk about here is a lot of people seem to bring up the fact that Jalen Brown is just not getting his just dues. Jalen Brown is not getting enough credit when it comes to this Celtics squad and what they're able to do. Well, the reason that he's not getting all the credit in the world is because you give it to the number one guy. And when you don't win, the number one guy gets completely destroyed. So, I don't know. Either it's one way or the other. So, I guess if you wanted to give Jalen Brown a bunch of credit for the beginning of the series, now you have to start crapping all over him because he has been playing that way. He went 5 of 18 shooting in Game 5, 0 of 5 from three-point range. That, I mean, you can't have that kind of stuff on the road if you want to be praised as the second best player on the team and the real reason that they were winning some of those games because that's how some of these people feel out there. Some of these people were, you know, harping on the fact that nobody is giving Jalen Brown enough credit. Well, I don't think that he necessarily deserves it. I, and I also think that he doesn't deserve all of the blame either because he's not that guy. The guy is Jason Tatum. He is the one that makes this team go. No, it's not Marcus Smart. We go as Marcus goes. No, we go as Jason Tatum goes. And if he's not hitting, if he's not finding a way to contribute, and that doesn't always have to be from shooting, though we need it to be from shooting these next two games. But up until this point, he was doing things. There was games where he was more of a passer because he couldn't figure out how to score. Obviously, game one of this series, he had 12 points, and they were able to still make that comeback and win, largely in part because he had 13 assists in that game to only two turnovers. So he was making the ball move to the players that were going to be able to hit the shots, and that's great. But at some point, Tatum, you have to have your game. You have to have your game. And at this point, really, at this point, you have to have two games. You have to have the two best games that you've had in the entire playoff run, and that's the only way that it feels like the Celtics are going to win. That's how it feels right now. That's how it feels right now to me, that Tatum has to come out here and absolutely dominate. Sure, I want Jalen Brown to show up in game uh, six and, 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 you know, win us a game. I would love for that to happen. But still, this is Jason Tatum's team. If we're actually going to do anything, it's going to come from him. So sure, it can be the role players. It can be the Grant Williams of the world, Peyton Pritchard at home. Any of these guys step up, give you 15 to 20 points off the bench. I believe we win game six. But then game seven would come around. It, and I know, I, I shouldn't even be talking about it, right? Why are you even talking about game seven if we can't even probably win game six? But if you get some kind of miracle performance from your bench players, which you got nothing from them in Game 5, by the way, if you get something out of that bench in Game 6, you should be able to be at least in this thing, if not win this Game 6. And then it comes down to Game 7, anything can happen, but you're going to need Tatum to wake up and figure things out. I, I don't know what you got to do, Tatum, but you got to figure out how to go to your left and still score. I guess that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of time. If you're not able to do that and it's going to come down to, was this team too young? Were they not able to do it because they didn't have the ability to realize the moment and realize what they're doing? Are they just happy to be here at this point? Did they, is it nice to just be in the finals? Because you don't know when you're going to get back here next guys. You don't know. It, it, I don't even know if it's ever going to happen again. We'll, we'll see at this point, but I, I don't know. 
it's it's rough. It's been a rough go. We're going to see how game six goes. I, I, I'm nervous about it. I, I don't feel great. I don't think anyone can. If you feel great right now about their chances, I, I don't know what kind of stuff you're drinking. The green Kool-Aid that you're drinking, I want some of it because there's no way that you can feel confident at this point in this Celtic squad. We'll see how it goes. I'll talk more about it on Friday, but... As of right now, not feeling great. All right, we got to talk about some other stuff, some other sporting news around the world, and we're going to do that when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Clap Trap with your host, Zach Clap. In Seattle, that Sunday afternoon, it's a big game for the Red Sox, the rubber of three, and the last game of a long road trip in which they won eight and two. Our good buddy is Tom Karen. We'll get to the Celtics on a little golf in a second, too. But Red Sox first. You know, Tom, the first thing I was thinking about, and welcome as usual, is the idea that the extra playoff team this year really does help the Red Sox. Because if there was only five in the American League with Tampa, Toronto, and the Yankees, it would be a little tricky. But now there's, there's now that there is six, and the second-place teams in the other two divisions are bad, the Red Sox could actually be the fourth team in the American League to make the postseason in October. Let's discuss that first. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, any doubt that this was the uh, deepest division in baseball, I just look at those standings on your screen right now, right? Right now, you'd have four of the five teams in the American League East going to the postseason. The Red Sox, remember, at one point, nine games under 500. They were 10 and 19. They've reeled off 22 out of 32 since, and you mentioned that 8 and 2 road trip out west. Their best West Coast trip since 1995 so they're back in the hunt right now only three and a half back as you can see of the Rays. uh so hoping to move up by uh, alex Cora and his team really believe their best baseball is ahead of them but there's no doubt that right now just the fact that they are holding on to that extra wild card spot certainly makes that expanded field popular here in new england that's why you don't give up on this red sox squad they're continuing to go in this month of june and they've been continuing to go as as you just heard Curran say, since they were 10 and 18, they've rattled off so many wins at this point, not against the best teams in the league, but still rattled off wins. And that's what matters at the end of the day. Yes, they haven't really played anyone in the AL East. They haven't really gone toe to toe with the big talents in Tampa Bay and and Yank and uh, the New York Yankees and Toronto. They haven't really played those teams much at this point. So we do still have to see what they would be against other playoff teams, but they've been taking care of business. You win again last night against the Athletics at home, 6-1 to one, off of an insane performance once again from Nick Pavetta, which, by the way, is Nick Pavetta the ace of the Red Sox at this point? I mean, I know that we've got now uh, Ivaldi going on the IL, and you got Whitlock dealing with issues, and obviously we don't have uh, Chris Sale at this point, but... I I mean of the last what like let me see here one two three four five six out of his last seven starts he's gotten the win Nick Pavetta has and yes once again it's not against the best talent uh, but you know hey you're going uh, you had that game against Houston where you had a nine oh you had a complete game for him. Right before that game, you went seven strong against the Texans or, or, or against Texas. Uh, you have the game against Oakland where he pitched seven strong. You just went against Oakland again for eight strong innings. So I, I, this guy is now all of a sudden become 
the number one guy that you want out there for any of these performances. Now, he's not going in and blowing anyone away with his crazy, uh, you know, velocity or anything ridiculous like that, but he is having an outstanding season. And yes, sometimes these pitchers, they get to a point where they're just having a good year out of nowhere. And then, uh, you know, they go back to being who they really are another season. But hey, we'll take advantage of the fact that Nick Pavetta has been one of, if not your best pitchers going this season. Uh, by a long shot, I'd say. By a, by a long shot at this point. Because who else is actually doing what Nick Pavetta is able to do, right? I guess Nathan Avaldi has had a decent, decent year so far. Tanner Houck has had, uh, I guess, you know more wins than anybody else, but he's coming out of the bullpen. Michael Walker, the guy that I keep crapping on all the time because I thought that he was going to just fall apart at some point, technically has one of the the better records in on your team, but he hasn't put up a good performance in his last five starts, really, other than the one against the Angels, which made no sense where he went a complete game, which I still don't understand how the Angels work right now. But anyways... This team doesn't really have anyone but Nick Pavetta. He's your ace. He's the ace of your staff. He's pitched the most innings for you as a starting pitcher. He's got the best uh, or most amount of wins, and he's been doing it recently. He started off the year uh, slow, but now he has really turned things on after after that. So you hope he's not just a streaky guy who's going to switch it around and go back to the way he was at the beginning of the year because at the beginning of the year, he lost four out of his first five starts. And yes, those were teams like the New York Yankees, the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, he even lost to the Baltimore Orioles. So those are the teams that you have to worry about, right? And that's what we're going to end up having to do later on in the season. But right now, it looks like Nick Pavetta is able to take advantage of all of these crappier teams and able to help get the Red Sox into a good position. So we'll see how things go for this squad at this point. But I got to say, I, I guess Nick Pavetta is making me eat my words about this Red Sox pitching staff so far. I don't know. I, at this point, it feels like you're just taking advantage of, of uh, the teams that you need to take advantage of. And that's good because that's one of the major things that I thought about with the Celtics going back to them earlier in their season when they looked like trash, when they were under 500. And you were just saying they can't beat anybody. They can't even beat the bad teams. Well, now you have the Red Sox in a similar situation where at the beginning of the year they couldn't beat anybody. They couldn't touch anybody in the league. Whoever you put in front of them, they were going to give you a good run for your money. But now you're at least taking advantage of the teams that you should take take advantage of, right? So that's good for us. Rafi Devers has another home run. He's having a great season so far, batting 332 at this point with 15 home runs, 38 RBIs. Great job by him. Xander's doing his thing as well. You got Verdugo starting to kind of wake up, I would say, as of late. He's he's starting to get involved a little bit more. And so I'm happy with this with this team and where they're headed, but I don't know. At what point, I know, this is how this conversation goes every time. When you hear me talk about the Red Sox, it all ends up going to the trade deadline. It's such a long season that that's one of the major things that you have to talk about. They're playing every night, and yes, they're taking advantage of the teams that they should take advantage of right now. But if you go into this trade deadline this year, and once again, don't try to improve this team much more than going and getting a Kyle Schwarber type of signing... I don't know. How pissed off is the crowd going to be? How pissed off are Red Sox fans going to be? Because most of them were ready to already jump ship through the beginning of the season. 
when I was saying that, you know, unfortunately, we can't give up on this team yet. Unfortunately, I say you can't give up on this Red Sox squad yet because their bats are so good. When they get hot, they are just going to be able to score six-plus runs in every single game. And how are you supposed to combat that from the other side of things? You just need a little bit of pitching. You need a little bit of Nick Pavetta or somebody else that's going to be able to step in, a Michael Walker, somebody who's going to be able to give you some good innings from that starting rotation. And you're going to win when you get an advantage of six, five, six runs every single game. That's what they're capable of doing. That's what this offensive lineup can do. But if you don't go and address the pitching situation, you're getting a lot of Nick Pavetta right now. Is that going to last for the rest of the year? You're getting, or you were getting something out of Evaldi, but now he's on the injured reserve list. You still don't know if Sale's even going to come back this year. Please, please, Heim Bloom, upper management, go out there and spend on something. Please do that. Make this team worth wanting to watch because if you get even into the wild card position again and you just get your do doors blown off because you have no pitching once again, man, that's going to be super frustrating. It's just going to be so frustrating. All right, I got one last topic I'm going to talk about for our wrap of the show. We're going to do that when we come back after this on 90.7 WKKL. The Claptrap with your host, Zach Clapp. Let's welcome in Alan May to talk about this. Bruce Cassidy, the new head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights after Peter DeBoer. Was this the best hire for them? I think so. When you look at the last six years, what he was able to accomplish with the Boston Bruins, I think he had like a 632 win percentage and, and always in it. And every season that he coached, and that you would have had a, a full 82-game season, it would have been 50-plus wins. So his, his win-loss, getting to the finals a few years ago, those are all good things. But one of the things about the Vegas Golden Knights, in, in which they need to coach, they have an up-tempo team, but they have to be better without the puck. And that's one of the areas that I think Cassidy can address. He's a guy that's teams, they play hard, they smother the puck, they're tough to score against. And he's had arguably the best defensive player in the history of the NHL, and Patrice Bergeron, who's also an excellent offensive player, too. He won't have that in Vegas, but they have a lot of great pieces. They're in win-now mode because their team isn't that young. They've got a lot of nice pieces, though, and they want to play an up-tempo game. And he addresses that more than probably anybody out there that was on the open market right now. When you think of all the coaches that you're looking at, you know, Barry Trotz is all about defense, but it seems like it's only about defense. So I don't think he would have necessarily been the greatest fit there. And the other coaches available, I just don't think the resume is there as far as the style of play, goals for, goals against, power play, penalty kill, because right now Cassidy has all of those in his pocket. He's a very good coach. He's still young by coaching standards. He's only coached eight years in the National Hockey League. He's got 501 wins, if memory serves right. But uh, he's a great hire for the Vegas Golden Knights. All right, here we go, Bruins. Here we go. You've lost your coach now. Don Sweeney, you've made your decision. You've pissed off people like myself who thought there was no reason to get rid of Cassidy unless you were cleaning the, the entire house. It's not just putting it on Bruce Cassidy. He has been good. And now you're going to see him go and you be on a Vegas Golden Knights team. No, he's not going to be right in your face, obviously, in different conference. But their team is going to be in win-now mode right now. Right now. They are ready to go. Are you ready to go, Boston? Are you ready to go, Bruins squad? Because right now, it feels like we are going down and Vegas has a chance to go up. Now, obviously, they're still a new franchise. But because of that, they've gotten a lot of good, talented players recently. 
obviously went to the finals their first year, and then they've been to the conference finals, they've been to the second round, they've been perennially, since they've been inducted into this league, a good playoff team, or gotten to the playoffs, except for this year, obviously. So, now they have a good coach. Now they have a guy that's going to be able to change up their mentality and get them a little bit better defensively. Is this going to change the whole way that the Vegas Golden Knights play? Is it going to change their outcomes in the playoffs as well? Because I got to tell you right now, it doesn't feel good thinking that Bruce Cassidy is now on coaching another team that was at least on par with you, if not better than you, going into this year. And now he's going to have an opportunity to get possibly a Stanley Cup before the Bruins will. Right, Because now you have to be in win-right-now mode if you by chance get Patrice Bergeron to come back and if by chance this team can actually stay healthy after their their what's going to be a horrible start. Let's be honest. I mean, Marchand coming off of an injury, Bergeron coming off an injury, McAvoy coming off an injury, all these guys, your big, talented players coming off injuries and a lot of question marks still on the offensive side. Things like even Will Krejci come back and play for this team. It's going to be tough sailing right out the gate for this squad, but will they be able to turn things around? And who is going to be their coach? How are you going to go with that? What Which position are you going to take? Are you going to take a coach that's going to be more defensive-minded? Are you going to take a coach that's more offensive-minded? How are you going to do it? Because I'm upset that Bruce Cassidy isn't going to be the coach of this Boston Bruins team going forward. He was the guy. He's done more than enough. And like I said, unless you were cleaning house completely, uh, and that includes Don Sweeney, I don't see any reason for getting rid of Bruce Cassidy. Sure, he's a little bit upsetting to some of the players, but he's a head coach, and he's going to try and rattle some feathers, ruffle some feathers, try and get uh, under their skin a little bit to get the most out of them. That's his coaching style, and I have no problem with that. The players I have a problem with, not being able to handle such, uh, such a coaching style. Grow up, right? I mean, you're a professional athlete. You can't take a little criticism from your coach. Now you got to get rid of him. Or oh, what are we, turning into the NBA? Or, or, you know, like one of these player-driven leagues where if you say anything bad about your, your star player or anything like that, you're fired immediately. I, I mean, is that what we're turning into here on the Boston Bruins? Because I thought that we were tougher than that. I thought that we got players that were tougher than that. But I guess not. Uh, when you got the Jake DeBrus of the world that whine that he's not a top six forward when he's clearly not playing like a top six forward and things like that. So I don't know. Here we go, Bruins. Here we go, Don Sweeney. Now you got Cassidy over on the Vegas Golden Knights, and there's something that we can directly look at, correlate to this situation, and see who is going to do better. Will Bruce Cassidy get a Stanley Cup first or the Boston Bruins? Because he's in a good position now, and the Bruins are have a lot of question marks. So if I had to guess, I think that there's more likelihood that Bruce Cassidy gets a Stanley Cup first. That's just how I feel right now. Maybe I'm a little pissed off still about this decision-making process. That could certainly be the case. But at this point, it feels like we are running around like chickens with our heads cut off, not knowing what's going to be the start of the next season. And you got rid of the only good thing that I thought we had in the in the head coach going into the next year. I thought that that was a stable part of this team. You get rid of him. You don't know what's going on with a lot of your players, what your lineup's going to look like. Will your captain come back? All of these things. Meanwhile, Bruce Cassidy gets to go over into a better situation with the Vegas Golden Knights, and we're going to find out what he's going to be able to do with that team. All right. Ugh, I'll take a deep breath. I got to stop talking and complaining about all these Boston sports teams. I mean, the Red Sox are the only one who are holding us together at this point. Celtics, I need you to turn it up. Red Sox, you're doing fine right now. We'll see how you do against the better competition. Bruins, you're pissing me off. 
Patriots, I don't know. We'll see how things go in the offseason and how they go at the beginning of your year, but I don't have a ton of faith in them either. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. I just want to say thank you to anyone tuning in to this episode. It'll be up as a podcast. Wherever podcasts are found, just search The Claptrap. I would really appreciate it. I will be back on Friday to talk all about the Celtics Game 6, hopefully with high spirits going into another game, possibly. We'll see how it goes, but if not, then I'll just uh, completely rip the team in. We'll look into the offseason, and then it'll all be Red Sox from here on out. All right. Keep it right here on 90.7 WKKL. For more of the Capes Classic Alternative, I will talk to you on Friday. Later. Later.